Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city, meaning Rome. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand in Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It's the word of God. And what's interesting is we call that the word of God, but really what we've just read is a story of a man. He's telling some part of his own life story, and yet it's incorporated into Scripture and it continues to strengthen and lift up and build up people who have followed Christ over the centuries. Now, I have a question for you, and the title of this message is Finding Your Voice, Insights or Lessons from Paul's Testimony. <clears throat> when I say the word testimony to you, what do you think of right away? 
What are some of the associations you have with the word testimony? For some of us, maybe it's the open mic night at the last day of a revival meeting or a retreat. Some of you remember those. I mean, we don't really do that very much anymore because it's awkward or I don't know why we don't do that. Maybe we just lost our faith. But growing up, I remember after each big meeting, spiritual revival, we would just leave the mic up there just like that. And people, one after another, you know, it would always be the first one, take a while. And then every single person in the room would say something. And around four in the morning, you'd finally go home. And I remember those times and how uplifting they were. How much I learned or saw of God just by hearing other people talk about him. Maybe another setting in which you associate the word testimony is in a court of law where someone under oath is sworn to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth so that those making a decision, a very important decision, would have the information they need. And maybe that's the forensic context in which you usually think of the word testimony is we're called to give some kind of an argument or a defense and that's the way you think of testimony or maybe for some of us it's just sitting in a cafe sharing my testimony that's a very common phrase in the christian experience sharing my testimony listen i just want to share with you my personal testimony about christ and my journey with him Now, whatever the context may be, I believe that Christianity has always, from the very beginning, like a benevolent virus, has always been transmitted person to person. I I really think the heart of the gospel is such that the main way it's been transmitted over time is as one person tells the story in a way that is personal and fleshed out and passionate. In a way that doesn't feel like some remote philosophical argument, but sounds like somebody telling another person about a real story in a real life where they found the Savior and it changed everything. I believe that sharing our testimony has always been and will always be a very essential element of the Christian experience. Now, that's not welcome news for everybody. I think there are a lot of people for whom the sight of an open mic is a terrifying thing. If I just call that random and just, should I do this? Just ask a few of you to come up and just share your story of your journey with Jesus Christ at this mic. Would that be cool? You're all staring at me like if you do, we're leaving the church. They say that, that statistically, the fear of public speaking is greater than the fear of death in the United States. It's unbelievable. It's hard to believe that people are more scared of speaking in public than dying. Right? It's incredible. So I know that it's not welcome news to hear that a part of the Christian experience is that we ourselves must open our mouths and tell the story of Jesus. But that is our calling and it is also our privilege. And the aim of this message is not to make you feel guilty about it, but to encourage and strengthen you in that task, to train you for it, so that armed with these insights, you actually think that you can do this and want to do it, not as a ministry task, but as a natural outflow of having an amazing story in your own life. I want to share two insights out of that long passage with you. And the first is that our story is our testimony. Our story is our testimony. In our text this morning, finds Paul at a very difficult turning point in his life. Up to this point, he's been ministering essentially as a free man traveling from city to city. In a few places, people beat him up. They threw rocks at him, but he was always free. 
Now he's entered Jerusalem. He's brought an offering of money from all the Gentile churches to the starving people in Jerusalem who are under a famine at the time. And so there they are. Uh, and the Jews just can't stand this guy. They believe that he is now an enemy of Judaism. Even the Christians who are formerly Jews and have converted to Christ still love the old Jewish ways and see Paul as a threat to them. And so they form a mob. And has it ever struck you as curious that some of the most violent people are religious people? It doesn't matter what religion. We Christians are not safe from prosecution on this one. It seems like violence and religion go hand in hand. And that seems like opposite of how it should be, but I understand. Because religion treads on the realm of our deepest held beliefs. Those things which, if you take them away from us, we don't know who we are or where we stand in the world. They are some of our most fiercely defining convictions. And so when people threaten those things, it's no wonder that something deep, animal-like comes out of us and we want to silence the one who is offending our deepest, most hallowed things. So these people form a mob and they're out there basically to kill Paul. They've shut the gates so that his blood won't accidentally splatter into the temple courts and defile that holy place. I mean, that's like us going, you know what? We really don't like what you just did over there in the fellowship hall. Let's all just kill him out in the parking lot. Do you realize how horrific a scene this is? And so here's Paul about to be killed. And it happens that the Roman, uh, the Roman tribune, the, the commander of all the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at the time, occupied a building called the Antonius Fortress that sat high on top of a hill overlooking the temple grounds. And he's probably sipping his coffee and looking out the window, and he sees a riot forming. So it says he ran down with a bunch of troops and other commanders to try to squash this little riot in the making. And he gets down there and he settles the whole scene down. He tries to take some names, get some statements. And he just realizes everybody's shouting and they can't make sense of what's going on. So they grab Paul. They arrest him. Of course, you've got to arrest the guy who everybody's yelling at, right? And so they're taking him to the barracks for questioning. It is at this point in his story. And the turning point is from this point on, Paul would never be a free man again. He would be a prisoner, an inmate for the rest of his earthly life. It's at this moment... That Paul, the crazy, purpose-driven man on a mission, goes, hey, actually, while most of us would be thinking about ourselves and how bad prison's going to be, he says, hey, listen, could you just wait before we walk in? I'd like to talk to this murderous mob and share my testimony with them. One thing that tells me is there's really never a bad time to share your testimony, okay? Um, and listen to how he approaches it. I think this is, this is telling. As the soldiers are about to take Paul into the barracks, he asks the commander... Hey, may I say something to you? Do, you? do you know something in the tone of that? And a, a couple of verses later, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. I don't want to read too much into that except to say, I don't think Paul was being brash and aggressive and rude here. He wasn't trying to shout. He really wanted to be heard. And listen, when he, when he finally got permission from the commander, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowds. Sort of like a school teacher who instead of yelling just kind of goes, I'll just wait. Just wait. Do you, have you seen teachers do that? And eventually the kids go, hey, shut up. She might be mad or something, but she's just sitting there. It's creepy. And they all quiet down. And Paul's motioning because his whole point is he doesn't want to shout. He wants to be heard. He won't speak 
unless the people he's trying to address are in a mindset to listen. And then he does another interesting thing. He speaks to them in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke. It's the language that the Jews of that day spoke. It was their heart language. You know, a lot of bilingual people who are fluent in two languages actually think and dream and have a heart language that's one of those two. And for these people, they could all speak Greek, maybe some passable Latin, but everybody among that crowd thought and believed and loved and hated in Aramaic. And so Paul makes this really incredible decision. He addresses them in their heart language, bypassing, I think, these Roman guards altogether, saying, this is not for them. I'm trying to talk to you guys. And he delivers his testimony to them in their heart language. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to be uh, milk toast people who wait for permission or a mouse you. Uh, excuse me, do you think I could maybe share with you my story? We don't have to be mousy, but I do believe that while we are clear and we are bold, we don't need to be rude and aggressive. After all, how much fruitfulness is there in a room where everybody's shouting their core beliefs at the top of their lungs and not a single person is in that room to listen? Some people go, who cares? I don't care. I can, allow it. I can yell louder than everyone. Let me just shout what I have to say. I don't think that's what the Bible means when it says shout it from the rooftops, is that we have to be brash and obnoxious and offensive to people. The gospel itself will offend. Let's not get in the way and add our offense to the inherent offense of the gospel message, which indicts men and women of their sins. And then he says to them, <clears throat> He says to them, brothers and fathers, listen now to my, what? My defense. My defense. Now, as he uses that word, it's a legal term, isn't it? He's about to be prosecuted, and it sounds like what he's saying is, look, let me stick up for myself a little bit here. But we need to be very clear on this. Paul's motivation in sharing his story is not to vindicate himself. He's not an insecure man trying to get people to like him better. And it's certainly not a last-minute ploy to get out of jail because look at what he said to his Ephesian elder friends just, well, for us, just two weeks ago in the sermon, but, but just a couple weeks before, the days before this, he says to them, now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. How's that for a prediction? However, and listen to what he says in his readiness to go. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And what's that task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul didn't come to Jerusalem to save his own skin. He's not giving this defense to get out of jail. One stop after those Ephesian elders, he went to a place called Caesarea, and there a bunch of his friends were gathered, and a prophet had come up to him and said, Listen, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, this is how they're going to treat you. And he bound himself up and said, You're going to be tied up and led away to prison just like this. And so obviously his friends in Caesarea were very alarmed, and here's how he answers them. They're crying and begging Paul, Don't go to Jerusalem, save yourself. And then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've done a gut check pretty regularly with myself asking this question. If I lived in a country 
where it would cost me my life to out myself as a Christian, could I do it? Could I ever say the words Paul just said here in honesty? Because the honest truth is I've grown up in the safest country on earth. The biggest problem I had this past week was eating too much food. I gained five pounds since Monday, and that is what's got me stressed out in my life. Does that not speak to the kind of place in which we live? And yes, that makes us strong in one sense, in that we've got lots of, of, of strength because food fills our bellies, but it makes us incredibly weak in another sense, because nothing has ever been tested. It has never really cost us anything. But Paul here is not making a defense to get himself a better life. He's saying the gospel is so defining, so precious to me, that I am willing even to give up my own life so that others can hear this testimony. Not vindication of myself, but a testimony to the glory and the grace of Christ's gospel. I believe that the spirit in which Paul is using the word defense is not in a legal term to save himself, but in the spirit of 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says to his friends, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you what? For a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I believe this is the mandate that Paul also heard, was that, He's not defending himself. It's not him who's on trial, but it is the Lord ultimately who is on trial. And he's saying, look, the basis of a testimony is simply this. Why on earth would anyone live like me? What drives me to do these crazy things, to face prison, to stand in the marketplace and get all of you ready to kill me? Why am I doing it? And it's not to vindicate ourselves, but to say there is a reason that drives me, and I'm going to share that reason with you. That reason is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. As we think about defenses, I can't help but have my mind transported into a courtroom. And we often use the word synonymously, testifying and witnessing, right? I mean, to share your testimony and to witness for Jesus are essentially the same activities. So if we pick up on that word witness, I want you to think about this. In a courtroom, how many of you guys like courtroom dramas? Those legal, suspenseful, you don't know in the end who's going to be guilty or not guilty. In a courtroom, there are two kinds of witnesses, aren't there? The first kind is an expert witness. That witness smokes a pipe, wears elbow patches. He's got 18 million degrees from Ivy League colleges. He was nowhere near the scene of the crime. He doesn't know any of the people involved. Zero relational proximity to the events at hand. But here's what he does have. He has a huge body of expert knowledge on blood spatter patterns or on the drainage patterns in in wetlands or the the rate of decay of human organs and whatever. And so whatever the case may be, he's got some large body of expert knowledge and he shares that to give the decision makers and the jury a solid body of knowledge upon which to make their decision. So in other words, he's now the expert bringing all this knowledge to the fore even though he's not related to the issue or the people on trial. The other kind of witness which is far more common 
And it's not a paid position. You know, expert witnesses make a lot of money. Lots of doctors and other people leave their fields to make money just as expert witnesses in court case after court case. The more common kind of witness is the eyewitness. People like Antoine Dodson, right? Who the only qualification they might have... You guys know, and if you don't know who Antoine Dodson is, get on the internet more often. Get with the times. Your own pastor knows who Antoine Dodson is. Anyway... The only qualification that an eyewitness has, he may not even be able to string together an intelligible English sentence with proper grammar, but this much he has, I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. Watch your kids. It's dangerous out there. Do you see that the only qualification for an eyewitness is first-hand experiential knowledge of the people or the events in question. You don't have to be able to fire off in response to every tricky question. And I think that's why so many of us are so uptight about sharing our testimony. We believe that we're called to be expert witnesses, and God has only called a few of us to do that. The vast majority of us, the only thing God has called us to do is to be eyewitnesses. You may not have every theological answer for every theological question, But this much you know, there was a time when I was lost and he found me. There was a time when I was blind and now I see there is a Jesus who though I can't articulate him in the same words that someone else might, I know this person and I can tell you about him as far as I know. I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. I heard it. And I'm just going to tell you in honesty the whole story of my life with him. As you see the opening salvo of Paul's defense, his testimony, look at how autobiographical the whole thing is. This is not a sermon where he's giving um, philosophical or theological principles. This is Paul, a man, standing in front of the, the barracks, telling his own story. I am a Jew, born in... You're thinking at some point, who cares? Why are you telling us about your life? Because our story is our testimony. It is in the telling of our story that ultimately we see God more clearly on display. You know, one person who has really helped me see the value of sharing a story is Pastor Jared. And I remember early on in the interview process, we were in this mode, I was in this mode of like trying to get to know about him as a professional. And he met me at a Dunkin' Donuts. I remember him saying, you know, I was hoping, and at first I was like, what? He goes, I was hoping we'd just sit and share our stories. I want to hear your story. And I was like, okay, and we did it, and it was one of the most meaningful conversations we've had. I just told him my whole story, and he told me his, and it was amazing how much we actually got to know each other through that. In that Dunkin' Donuts, we connected. And in hearing his story, I wasn't just hearing the story of a man, I was also hearing the story of God in a man's life. It strikes me that many of us don't know each other's story. We don't. And we don't know it because we have never really sat down and asked. Here's a little, here's a little one that's going to get some marriages in turmoil. Uh, I'll be increasing my counseling hours with this one. But some of you married couples, could you write a 10-page biography of your spouse before you got married? Because after you got married, you were there for everything. Sure, you're just telling your story 
sitting next to them. But how much do you really know of the details of their story before you came into their life? Yeah, you know, routinely I'm talking to couples and, and one will look at the other and go, I never knew that. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. You're actually much cooler than I thought you were. And I'm thinking, wow, how can we do so much life together and never once just sit down and go, hey, what is your story, man? Or woman? You know, you know the way I love Jason Pankow, our other, my other friend who led us in the Omega course, one cool thing he says is he sits down with you and he goes, all right, so you were born and then what happened? I'm listening. And he just shuts up and he sits there across the table. You're like, what? He goes, hey, you were born and then what happened? And what he's saying is, what is your story? Because as you retell it, you yourself will be amazed at the richness, the, the way in which Christ has filled that story. Eugene Peterson, the one who did the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, he wrote a very good book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. It's a book about how theology is not something that happens in classrooms, in ivory towers. Christ is visible in the mundane, everyday fabric of real people's lives. In the waiting room of a jiffy lube. Reading a bedtime story to your kids. Just whatever the case may be. Waiting in line for movie tickets. Christ fills our world. And he fills the lives of those who know and love him. So here's Paul. Telling his story to a crowd that seconds ago wanted to murder him. Now here's the the other part of it though that I think is so interesting. He's talking to a crowd that's Jews, but thousands of this crowd are Christian Jews. They are converts and people who once, maybe several years ago, were people Paul would have hunted down and killed. And instead of just glossing over that part of his little story, you know, yeah, I know some of you know I used to murder all of you guys, but uh, I'm changed. He doesn't gloss over it. He leads with this. He goes, you guys know that I used to be a persecutor of those who, like you, follow this way of Christ. I arrested many of them, even sending them to their deaths. I gloated while Stephen was being martyred and stoned to death. He doesn't skip over the darkness that marked his life. That's often tempting to do. It's to say, you know, ever since Jesus, I became a Stepford human being. You know, I became like this perfect um, middle-class, Midwestern, suburban, upstanding, tax-paying citizen. I don't swear when people cut me off in traffic. I never yell at my spouse. My children only hear my gracious inside voice. Whatever. We sometimes like to act as if Christ has sanitized us and taken all the yucky out. But the honest part of our story is there was a lot of darkness, and before that darkness consumed us, Read the first couple chapters of Ephesians. It used to be that we were slaves to that. We walked in that way with bondage. We couldn't help it. But that was the only thing going on. And after Christ, some of that darkness remains, but he's redeeming it. And that's the part of the story that I think is so powerful. We cannot shortchange the honesty that comes in the real story. And when you're sharing your testimony, don't feel like you're going to make Christ look bad if you say some things bad about yourself. You know, over over the course of the last week, Jeannie and I have sat down to meals with a number of different couples. And something is in the water this past week because we were astounded this whole week 
at the level of honesty that was being thrown our way. We felt so honored to be trusted by these couples like this. No egos, no concern about our dignity or our reputation, no concern about when Pastor Dave and Jeannie leave, you're going to punch me in the face or, or make me sleep on the couch or yell at me, give me the cold shoulder. Just people going, this is us right now. This is what we're going through. You want to know us? It's not the thing you see from a distance. Here's our lives, but God is working. We're getting through it. We're clawing our way through, but God is showing up. But we don't want you to be misguided about how hard it is. Couple after couple. And it so encourages me to realize how close you feel to a person when they tell you the truth about their lives. They don't spare you by sanitizing it, but they share even the darkness with you because in that dark, the light of Christ shines a little brighter. And that's the second insight I want to share with you before I wrap up. Is that our story is our testimony, but really Jesus is our story. Or I should say, Jesus is the best part of that story. You know, I'm glad that some of us are able to own our darkness. That's a good thing. To be able to honestly say, look, I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm so far from perfect, I shouldn't even use the word in the sentence. I am just a dark human being, daily being rebuilt by our Lord Jesus. But if, as, as, how do I say it? Even though I appreciate that honesty and the intimacy it breeds among us when we're honest about the junk in our lives, if that's where the story ends, it's kind of depressing. If I tell you, you know, I'm pretty mean at home. I'm addicted to this. I do that. You'd be amazed at the language that runs through my head when I'm behind the wheel of a car. And if I told you all that junk and I totally owned it, I said, high five, let's go home. And just be gross together, man. Let's just stink it up, fill the world with our honest stank. Would that be an uplifting story? Of course not. It's important to own your darkness, but it's also important not to let your darkness own you. If that's the end of the story, it's not a very interesting or uplifting story. And so that's why, as Paul is sharing his testimony, there is a clear turning point, a climax point, in which he says, about noon, as I'm walking on the road on a mission trip to kill more Christians in a faraway city. I mean, talk about a mission trip, right? I'm going to go kill some of you in another town in another country. And around noon at that town, on that road, he saw a bright flash of light that was so blinding, it brought him to his knees. His companions all saw it, and a voice came booming out of that blinding light. And it was the voice of none other than Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. We believe through all the, the, the construct of this testimony that he didn't see a vision of Jesus, but Jesus himself risen appeared to him in that light. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Isn't it interesting that Saul says, who are you, Lord? Because he, he was no stranger to Jesus. He was a man on a mission to destroy Jesus and his followers. He thought he had Jesus figured out, but then when Jesus actually meets him, he doesn't know what to make of him. That's the case for so many of us. The day we met Jesus, he defied every preconceived notion we had of him. There's a time in my life where I honestly thought, if I say yes to God, if I say yes to Jesus, he's going to ruin my whole life. 
He's going to maybe go to the most poor country in the world, wear a grass skirt, eat caterpillars and cockroaches, get killed by a spear when I'm 35. I really thought that that was my life if I said yes to Jesus. I thought he was always angry. I thought he didn't like music or dancing or fun in general. I really had so many well-defined thoughts of Jesus that proved to be completely false once I actually met him. You know, I like to tell the story of my friend Karen. I, Karen was a, a girl that I, I met in college. We never had any romantic interest, okay? We're just friends. But she's somebody who, her natural countenance was kind of like this. All right? And so I would see her like this. She lived in the women's dorm adjacent to our men's dorm. And she'd walk past me on the way to class, and I'd see her, and I'd say, hey, and she'd say, hey, and that's it. And, we'd, and I just remember thinking, that is one curmudgeon of a woman. That is... That woman's always in bed. And I just, my initial impression was, I didn't like her at all. I thought she was mean and unfriendly and blah, blah. But then I ran into her at our church group. And in our church group, we got stuck in the same small group. And in that small group, we were forced to live together, work, work together, follow Christ. Not live together, like live together. You know, do life together. I should be a little more careful how I speak. And in the process of doing that, this woman really surprised me. She was one of the most warm-hearted, Christ-loving, generous, kind-hearted people I'd ever met. Still a friend today. I think she's an amazing person. And my first impression of her was totally off. I really think that's the exciting part of our story about Jesus. Is like everyone else, we thought we had him all figured out. We boxed him away in a little corner of our lives and said, I'm not going to go to that Jesus place because I think this is how my life will be. But then why are all these people who actually opened that door and walked into that room, why are they still so happy? I don't get it. And that's because when you actually encounter Jesus, he will shatter your wrong thinking about him. He will tell you that you, just like everybody, you're not supposed to figure someone out without meeting them. You meet them and you'll know them. And everybody who has met Jesus has a story to tell. And that's the part of our story that is the most compelling, truly the most uplifting and interesting to share. What's interesting is instantly overnight, Paul is converted from one of the most zealous persecutors of the Christian way to one of its most fervent missionaries. You will be his witness to all men of what? Of what you have seen and heard. Whose voice is saying that to him? It's the voice of Jesus saying, look, your whole message, Paul, is not some carefully worked out logical construction of systematic theology. That's not it at all. Your central message, as good as those other things are, your central message is this moment on this road with me. Your message is me. The day I found you when you were lost, the day you got your sight when you were blind, today is your testimony. And my calling upon you, Paul, is to go into all the nations and be a witness to all men of what you have seen and heard on this road. I myself am your message. You know, this is what we need to remember. That sharing our testimony is not ultimately about converting people to an alternate lifestyle. Getting them to come to church. 
telling them, you got to stop smoking. Jesus doesn't like it and you'll get cancer. That is not the first concern. The message of Christ is not primarily clean up your act. Stop doing bad things. The primary message of the gospel is Jesus Christ who seeks out and finds lost people. If you don't have that story down, every fancy thing you translate from the Greek and Hebrew will not find meaning in human hearts. Jesus Christ is our story. He is our message. And as you share your story, the important thing is to turn that corner and say, this is who I was. It's still a big part of who I am. But there was a time when Jesus entered the picture. And it's made all the difference in the world to me. Hey, why am I saying that to you? To instruct you on how to formulate your story, to make you go home and get Microsoft Word fire up and go, I got to change the resume a little bit. All right, so he said, I should talk about, I'm not saying make up a story. I'm saying think hard about what your real driving engine story has been. I mean, why are you an evangelical Christian? Why are you sitting in a high school cafeteria listening to me go on and on and on? Why? What are you doing here, really? Is it because you believe being here and being with this pe- these people makes you a good, upstanding citizen? Makes you on God's team? Makes you a good human being? What is the engine that drives your whole deal for being here? For counting yourself among the number of those who follow Christ? I'm asking you to rethink your story so that your story is also a blessing for you. Is Jesus and meeting him the turning point of everything? Is it? Our message should not be a sales pitch. It should not be an irrefutable, logical argument. It should not be the story of how we cleaned ourselves up. Here's what 1 John 5.11 says, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This is our message This is our whole story. So let me wrap up my time with you this morning by asking you, honestly, what possible redeeming value could there be in us sharing the story of our lives with anybody else? So you know a little bit more about me. Why should you care? What difference should that make in your life? Well, it's it's perplexing, I know, but God says this is one of the primary ways in which I will reveal myself to the world. As you share your story, and especially as you share your story of the life you found in my son, I'm going to reveal myself to the world. Ultimately, my story is the story of Jesus Christ. And his coming into my life is the only thing that makes the rest of my story worth listening to at all. Because without that part of it, it's like hearing a trash, kind of like Korean dramas. Just ridiculously sad, and you're waiting like a good American for the happy ending that never, ever comes. Don't watch Korean dramas if you like being happy. Only watch them if you want to invent new ways to feel like just doing yourself in. It's so depressingly sad. All the creativity in Asia is aimed at creating sadness, it seems. And without Jesus... As we rehearse our stories in coffee shop after coffee shop, that's all we'll be doing is going, yeah, you want to hear something really sad? Sit down and listen to this. 
But with Jesus entering the picture, our stories change, don't they? They ought to anyway. And as we tell the story of Jesus entering our lives, people start to listen. Because in our story, they see him. There was a woman in a Samaritan town sitting by a well, and she was a woman with a shady reputation. She's the kind of woman that most most self-respecting women, and certainly all the men in the town, would try to avoid so that her reputation wouldn't rub off on them. And Jesus walked right up to her and had a life-changing encounter with this woman. And part of that was he told her things about her, her life that no one else but God would know. And she was blown away. And this little encounter at a well to fetch water, this encounter with Jesus, shattered everything for her. It would be the dividing point for her life between B.C. and A.D. It would be the marking moment of her whole life. And it says, even though Jesus told her, don't go running all over town telling people about this, she couldn't help herself. That's the nature of a life that's found a great treasure, is it just runs through the streets telling anyone who will listen. This is how we are. When I discovered the Mr. Clean Magic Eraser sponge, I was running around buying them at Costco and handing them for free to people. you got to try this. It truly is magic. When we found a good thing, you can't shut us up, can you? Just ask any teenager who's got a favorite rock group. Shut up already. We hate your group. But they can't stop because this is the gospel of good news to them too. And the person who's excited because Jesus is pulsing through their life, they will tell the story and others will see Jesus in that story. And it says in John 49, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Isn't that amazing? They believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And I think it's our turn to be like her. To begin with the real story, not a made-up story. To bear witness to what you yourself have seen of Christ. And if he's far away, at all costs, call out to him and ask him to bring you home. Do not be content to go through a season of coldness and distance from Jesus. He's the only one who's going to make your life worth living. And if you feel far from him, that is not the new normal. It is not an acceptable way to be. Stop coming to this building hoping for something to just infect you just by chance. If you're far from God in this place, that is the biggest priority with which you need to leave this building today. It's to beg God to bring you home. To ask Him to draw you closer to Himself so that He becomes once again the fiery coal in the engine of your heart the one who defines and guides and directs everything and makes it right. If he doesn't have that role, you are not truly, fully alive in him. And that is the beginning point of Christianity. It's not where we graduate. It's not the final level. It is where it begins, is when Jesus is pulsing through our lives. If you don't have that story, reconnect to that story before you go and tell anybody else a story. Our story is our testimony because our story is the story of Jesus Christ. And when we tell it, people will see him and they will believe. May God make this true of us 
And let's just go before him in prayer. And I think we need to pray at a couple levels, depending on where you might be. I'll just guide you a little bit and we'll pray. Maybe some of us realize that that isn't the actual story of our lives. We're far more excited about something else today than we are about Jesus. And that's maybe where you need to begin your prayer, is I want my story back. I want you back at the center of it all. And perhaps for others still, the story is there, but you realize how quiet you've been and how many people around you need to hear that story. So we can ask, Jesus, open my mouth. Give me boldness to tell the story well. Why don't we go to prayer, and then after we prayed for a few minutes, I'm going to invite the praise team to just take us into a time of closing songs. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.